0: Returning to the book of Leviticus this morning, <clears throat> you may remember that Leviticus is strategically located in the Pentateuch or the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. It's just strategically located right in the middle of those books. You have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So Leviticus has the middle place, and you'll probably recall that often the middle place is the most important place in Hebrew literature. And so uh, there's an emphasis being placed upon this book, I think even by its very placement you know, in the scriptures. And you'll uh, probably also uh, remember, perhaps, from when we began this study some time ago in Leviticus, that, that Exodus ends with, with posing a dilemma, a, a problem, a question. Uh, the tabernacle has been built. Everything is in place for the worship of Yahweh, Israel's God, there at Mount Sinai. And yet, when God's spirit, the, the glory cloud, as called, fills that tabernacle, no one can go in, not even Moses and Aaron. And so that rhetorically asks the question, how can a sinful people approach a holy God? How will it be possible for these sinners to come into the presence of Yahweh their God who is holy? Now historically uh, Leviticus takes us back to a critical turning point as well in redemptive history. Uh, God has redeemed for himself a most unlikely people, hasn't he? Uh, We could say that uh, these are nobodies, nobodies from nowhere. They're a uh, loosely connected set of tribes descended from a nomadic wandering uh, family uh, who have been enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years. Uh, They have no home. They have no particular identity of their own. Uh, so in a, in, a, in a real sense, we see here, I think, in, in this unfolding history that God is writing, history is his story, remember, I, I think we see an important principle here, that God delights in choosing nobodies from nowhere. <laughs> God delights in choosing nobodies from nowhere. Do you sometimes feel like that describes you? Okay, you're, you're a nobody in the grand scheme of themes, things, and and maybe uh, maybe in a sense you you don't have a, a fixed abode. Uh, I remember growing up as a preacher's kid; we got moved around a lot, and uh, and I had no sense really of belonging any particular place. Well, oh, God delights in choosing to love nobodies from nowhere. Uh, let's. In fact, let's let's sort of pull back and put this this book Leviticus in our text in the broadest possible context, the context of God's unfolding history through all of time, all of space. What is God about? Okay, what is the Lord doing? He He is. Re- remember it. it have this behind in sort of the back of your mind as you think of all of Scripture, that everything that you read here and everything that is taking place in all of human history, it all is headed toward one purpose, one goal. Okay, there is no such thing as chance. That there is no such thing as an uncertain outcome to human history. God has a purpose and that is to call into being a people who will reflect and enjoy his glory. That's what history is about. It's not about what you read in the newspaper or on the internet in the news. That, that's not what history is about. That those are trivial matters. God's purpose in history is calling into being a people for himself. As C.S. Lewis has pointed out, you as a human being created in the image of God have a transcendent significance that is greater than any human institution. You will outlast this church. You will outlast schools. You will outlast towns, states, nations, empires. They will all pass away. Human beings have an eternal destiny, either heaven or hell. And that's at the center of God's purpose. And so in in reading this history of Israel, we're learning important things about what that means for God to call into being a people for himself and what it means for you if you belong to God. What it means for you to be called out to be his people, uh, to bring glory to him. That's really what what we're about in looking at our text even today. So getting back to the historical context of Leviticus, uh, we are now with the people of Israel. They're in the wilderness at Mount Sinai. Okay, we, we've been taken out of slavery in Egypt, but we still don't have a home. Okay, we're still homeless. We're in the wilderness there, just camped. And, and perhaps part of the reason for that is because all the distractions are taken away. <laughs> okay. uh, I, I was chatting with, with Caleb some time ago, and he was talking about enjoying being away from electronic connections as part of his job. Well, God has sort of taken these people of Israel away from connections outside to hear him, to hear him speaking, okay? Isn't it great to have a, a, a day of worship like this where you can set aside other directions and, and focus in on God's word and listen to him? I know it's hard Sometimes. It's going to be hard looking at this chapter in Leviticus, okay? It's, it's going to be hard to maintain your concentration, but try to put away those distractions and hear what God's saying to you, even as he's speaking here to the Israelites. So uh, let's direct our minds then to this uh, rather challenging text, uh, Leviticus chapter 11, And the Lord, that is Yahweh, spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof, and is cloven-footed, and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh, you shall not touch their carcasses, they are unclean to you. These you may eat of all that are in the waters." Everything in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. But anything in the seas or the rivers that has not fins and scales of the swarming creatures in the waters and of the living creatures that are in the waters is detestable to you. You shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall detest their carcasses. Everything in the waters that does not have fins and scales is detestable to you. And these you shall detest among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are detestable. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the night hawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl, the cormorant, the short eared owl, the barn owl, the tawny owl, the carrion vulture, the stork the heron of any kind, the hoopoe, and the bat. All winged insects that go on all fours are detestable to you. Yet among the winged insects that go on all fours, you may eat those that have jointed legs above their feet with which to hop on the ground. Of them you may eat the locust of any kind, the bald locust of any kind, the cricket of any kind, and the grasshopper of any kind. But all other winged insects that have four feet are detestable to you. And by these you shall become unclean. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the evening. And whoever carries any part of their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Every animal that parts the hoof but is not cloven-footed or does not chew the cud is unclean to you. Everyone who touches them shall be unclean. And all that walk on their paws among the animals that go on all fours are unclean to you. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean into the evening, and he who carries their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. They are unclean to you. And these are unclean to you among the swarming things that swarm on the ground, the mole rat, the mouse, the great lizard of any kind, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the lizard, the sand lizard, and the chameleon. These are unclean to you among all that swarm. Whoever touches them when they are dead shall be unclean into the evening. And anything on which any of them falls when they are dead shall be unclean, whether it is an article of wood or a garment or a skin or a sack, any article that is used for any purpose. It must be put into water, and it should be unclean into the evening, then it shall be clean. And if any of them falls into any earthenware vessel, all that is in it shall be unclean, and you shall break it. Any food in it that could be eaten, on which water comes, shall be unclean. And all drink that could be drunk from every such vessel shall be unclean. And everything on which any part of their carcass falls shall be unclean. Whether oven or stove, it shall be broken in pieces. They are unclean and shall remain unclean for you. Nevertheless, a spring or a cistern holding water shall be clean, but whoever touches a carcass in them shall be unclean. And if any part of their carcass falls upon any seed grain that is to be sown, it is clean, but if water is put on the seed and any part of their carcass falls on it, it is unclean to you. And if any animal which you may eat dies, whoever touches its carcass shall be unclean unto the evening." And whoever eats of its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. And whoever carries the carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Every swarming thing that swarms on the ground is detestable. It shall not be eaten. Whatever goes on its belly and whatever goes on all fours or whatever has many feet, any swarming thing that swarms on the ground you shall not eat for they are detestable. You shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms, and you shall not defile yourselves with them and become unclean through them. For I am Yahweh your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am Yahweh, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy... For I am holy. This is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. Well, that was a mental workout for you, right? <laughs> Uh, but let's uh, take just a few minutes, so uh, we're, we're not going to go into great detail with this text, but <clears throat> let's take a few minutes to sort of walk through it together. So let's go back to the beginning of the chapter, and the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. This is the first time that Yahweh, God, has spoken to Moses and Aaron together. It's not, however, the first time that, that Yahweh has spoken to Aaron. And, and this will help you put this in context. Because in the previous chapter, chapter 10, God spoke for the first time in Leviticus directly to, Mo, to Aaron in, in a most distressing circumstance. The death of his sons Nadab and Abihu. You remember that story? Nadab and Abihu are priests Okay, Aaron and his sons are the priestly family. They've been given that privilege and responsibility. But in chapter 10, here very early on, in the administration of the priesthood, Nadab and Abihu dare to go into the presence of God in a manner that is not compatible with what he had given them. Remember, we we went through all those first chapters of Leviticus that explained in detail exactly how how the Israelites were to worship God through the sacrificial system, through the purification rites. Okay, they they had all those instructions, but Nadab and Abihu decided they were going to make up things on their own. They had a good idea for how to worship God, they thought. And they figured they could, as long as they were worshiping him, it was fine, whatever they did, however they wanted to do it. And so they come into his presence with what the narrative in chapter 10 called strange fire. Fire not authorized by the Lord. Fire not in keeping with his prescription for how incense was to be burned on coals. And fittingly then, That strange fire was met with a holy fire. As fire from the presence of God shot out and immediately executed Nadab and Abihu. In in that distressing circumstance, Yahweh speaks for the first time to Aaron directly. After that's happened, and verse 8 of uh, chapter 10 of Leviticus, Yahweh spoke to Aaron, saying, he gives him a, a few commands here, drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. So some people have read between the lines and, and thought perhaps Nadab and Abihu were drunk when they, when they did what they did. We're not told that in the text, so it's probably too much to assume that, but obviously what's being emphasized is you're to clearly have your wits about you when you administer worship in my name. But he goes on. He adds to that. And this is perhaps even more important to the point of our text. You, that is you priest are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that Yahweh has spoken to them by Moses. Don't miss the mercy in the midst of grace, in the midst of justice there. God's judgment of Nadab and Abihu is entirely just, entirely in keeping with his law. But God does not reject Altogether, the priestly line. He could have done that, right? Could have said to Aaron and his family, I gave you the chance, and practically the first thing you do is violate my law. Forget it. I'll choose somebody else. But he doesn't. He, he tells Aaron explicitly and his family, his descendants through him, you are to learn from this. And you are to distinguish between what is holy and unholy. learn from what happened to Nadab and Abihu. And not only that, you're to teach the people of Israel that kind of discernment. So now, in the beginning of chapter 11, Yahweh speaks directly to Moses as the mediator of the covenant, and to Aaron as representative of the priest who will do this teaching of distinguishing between the holy and the unholy, the clean and the unclean. And in fact, three more times, we'll see, we'll see it specified in the upcoming chapters through chapter 15, that God speaks to Moses and Aaron. So there's a message we might say of, of grace, of mercy, even in the midst of justice and judgment. So let's think about that a little bit in the context of verse 2 in chapter 11. Speak to the children of Israel, saying... And then begins a quotation, which goes all the way through the end of the chapter, doesn't it? So Some of you may have a, a copy of the New Testament with the letters of Jesus in red. Okay, if there is a similar kind of version of the Old Testament with the direct speech of God in red, practically all of Leviticus would be red ink. All the rest of this chapter from that first phrase in, in verse 2 would be in red ink because it's the direct word of God. The, the priests are to speak to the people according to the word of God, Then not to add to it or take away from it. Remember in our study of Matthew, we've seen Jesus over and over confronting the religious elite of his day for doing just that. That they were skipping over parts of the law they didn't care for, like taking care of their elderly parents, and they were importing things that weren't in the law, like this ritual hand-washing stuff that they were doing. And, and, And Jesus said, you're elevating your traditions over God's word. And he condemns them in no uncertain terms for that. The priests are to teach the people God's word, not their word. You need to be careful as a congregation to make sure whoever's preaching is preaching God's word. Test what you hear. I know I've said that before, (laughs) but it bears repeating. Test what I or any other preacher says by the word of God. It's the word of God that's authoritative, not a human being like me. And apply that to yourself, too. As members of the new covenant, if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ. You are a priesthood. We'll, we'll look more at that concept in the future. But you are a priesthood. Make sure that you speak and live the gospel according to God's word and not your own ideas your own customs, your own traditions. We're all prone to do that, to sort of fall back into the customs, the traditions we grew up with or the culture around us. Be really careful when you present the gospel to people that you present the gospel and, and, and don't mix in any human ideas. Be careful to have a strong understanding of what scripture teaches about, about how God saves people and communicate that to people and And so, in a sense, you know this word is for for us as well today. Well, that takes us to the the text itself. This is in a list of dietary rules, and it's easy to see the organization. you probably discerned it already the The divisions among the creatures really reflect the creation account back in Genesis one. Uh, the kind of categories that were given were given first in. The last part of uh, verse 2 through verse 8, we're given the category of the creatures that live on land. And then in verses 9 through 12, we're given the category of creatures that live in the water. And then in verses 13 through 19, we're given the category of creatures that inhabit the sky, we might say. And then in verses 20 and 23, we have a, a fourth category, which we might say refers to creatures that... It's not really clear whether they're land or sky. Okay. They spend a lot of time on the ground, but they also fly. And in verses 24 through 28, uh, there's sort of an addition to this consideration by addressing, well, what about, what about dead carcasses of these animals? And they're designated unclean, whether the animal is suitable for eating or unsuitable for eating. If they've died of their own, they've died from a disease or an accident or something like that, they're considered unclean. And then in verses 29 through 38, we have more detail with what are called swarming or creeping creatures that are considered unclean for eating. And it may be that these are dealt with in more detail because these are spoken of in terms of their being invasive of the space where where people live, their homes. And so perhaps that's the reason more Uh, more attention is is, uh, posed to them. Uh, In verses 39 to 40, it's emphasized that even those animals that are suitable for eating, if they die on their own, they render a person unclean. And we have that specification for the rest of the day and after washing. Verses 41 through 45, again, the creeping or swarming creatures are mentioned. With the addition of the expression, whatever goes on its belly... Which may call to mind, uh, may call to your mind the curse that God spoke against the serpent back in Genesis chapter 3. And again, there's that emphasis on the basic concern uh, the Israelites will avoid this ritual uncleanness. Remember, the, the uncleanness is not what we think of when we say something's unclean, that it's dirty, but a ritual uncleanness that would render them unable to participate in the holy services. And approach holy spaces. And then verses uh, 46 and 47 serve to mark the conclusion of the section, but as I'm, I'm sure you've already noticed, the climax really comes in verses 44 through 45. That's where we'll be spending most of our time. Uh, but before we note that, let's just uh, note quickly in passing the The categories of acceptable for eating and unacceptable for eating here. Now, there there have been reams written on why some specific animals are acceptable for a Jewish diet and some are not. People have come up with all kinds of theories. Well, maybe it's hygiene. Uh, Maybe it has to do with contact with the ground. Maybe it has to do with surrounding culture. And it's very difficult, if not impossible, to find any rationale that really explains everything in this list. You can't really come up with a set of human guidelines that will explain why everything is where it is. I think that's on purpose. I hope I'm not reading into the text here. But I think it's on purpose. I think there is an arbitrariness to this list. Why are beef cattle acceptable for eating, but not camels? Uh, Why why some insects and not others? I I think in the final analysis, there's an arbitrariness to this word. Even as there was an arbitrariness to God saying to Adam in the garden, don't eat that tree." Now, there is nothing wrong with that tree. It's not intrinsically evil. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with any of these creatures that are mentioned. We know that because back in Genesis, after God finishes creation, he pronounces everything good. Every one of these creatures was pronounced good. So there's nothing intrinsically wrong with them, just as there is nothing intrinsically wrong with the fruit of that particular tree. But Yahweh said, don't eat them. Do you see what that demands then of the Israelites? They don't really have a human rationale for this. But God has told them not to do it, so they're not to do it on the basis of faith. That's it, right? That they just trust God's word that they're supposed to eat these things and not eat these things. They're to live by faith. I think that's an important lesson that God is teaching here, these people and teaching us. Now notice too, of course that these dietary restrictions are unique to Israel. Okay. They did not apply earlier. When, when God spoke to Noah after the flood, he said, every living, moving thing can have for food. Okay. It was not until Mount Sinai that this distinction is introduced. And we know, and we'll look in more specifically at this next Lord's Day, that under the New Covenant, this does not apply. So this, these dietary laws are specifically for the people of God in this specific time. And you can tell that indirectly by the way that they're presented. These are presented in a way that makes it easy for the Israelites to follow them. You, you don't have to have a scientific analysis of the animal. Okay? You, 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 don't have to, you don't have to know the inner workings of the animal. Every one of these criteria that are given are easily visible. Okay? So, so people in that context could easily discern the difference. A child could learn these rules very early on. So indirectly, I think, as well as directly, we're told This is for Israel at this particular time. Now, the really important question, of course, is why? (laughs) Right? I I always like to encourage people to ask why questions. Some people get, some teachers get really nervous with why questions. Uh, Parents, I'm sure, sometimes get really tired of why questions. (laughs) but why questions are great when you come to Scripture. And I think that we're supposed to ask why. And I'll argue that because if you look down at verse 44 and 45, both those verses begin with a causal connector. Four. Okay? You have all these guidelines, and then you said, okay, why do you have these? For this reason, you see that, and, and, and as I said, this is this is going to be the heart of the of what Je- what uh, God is teaching these people here. So look look with me at verses forty four and forty five again. For it'll be healthy for you to do this. For well, these animals taste better than others. That's not it, is it? The reason why they're to do this doesn't really have to do with them. Remember, we said this is by faith. Okay? The reason centers on Yahweh, on their God. Four, verse 44 I am Yahweh, your God. Why obey these? For I am Yahweh, your God. You did not choose me. I chose you. He doesn't say, Well, you had an election back in Egypt and you voted all voted to have me as God. Didn't happen. He doesn't say, well, you decided to receive me into your hearts as God. Didn't happen. It's not a biblical phrase. I am Yahweh, your God. I chose you. You're to obey these rules because I chose you. I am your God. Notice in verse 45. Stated a little bit differently. For I am Yahweh who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Why did God rescue them from slavery? It was to be their God. Okay, their rescue wasn't centered on them. He didn't look down and say, you know, that bunch of slaves is such an appealing group of people. You know, aren't they nice? Don't they they behave well? I really think, uh, I really hope that they would let me be their God. (laughs) That didn't happen. God does not save people because they're so appealing. If anything, we'd say it's the opposite. He chooses the unappealing. This is a really unappealing bunch of people. You don't believe it, just keep reading in the Old Testament. The Israelites disappoint God over and over again. They're foolish over and over again. They're rebellious. They're disobedient. They do ugly, hateful things. Sort of sounds like the human race, doesn't it? Why obey these dietary laws? For I am Yahweh who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Why did God save you? Why did he decide to redeem you? Give his son's life to make atonement for your sins so that he would be your God. There is no salvation without submitting to God as king. You cannot be a Christian and not own God as your absolute monarch. Seal that into your minds because... Heresy is taught every day, especially in this country, concerning that. God says to the people he saves, I am Yahweh, your God. I have saved you out of the slavery to sin to be your God. And that means you submit to me in everything. That's one of the things we're gonna see unfold in Leviticus 11 and onward. Every aspect of the Israelites' lives lives is gonna be covered by the laws that Yahweh gives to them. And every aspect of your life as a believer is to be lived in submission to God as king. your finances, your sex life, your friendships, your diet, your everything is to be lived in submission to God as king. And on what authority do I say that? Well, it's the rest of verses 44 and 45, isn't it? Consecrate yourselves, therefore, verse 44, and be holy, for I am holy. Verse 45, you shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. If God is a holy God, then his people have to be holy. That's a non-negotiable. How can a holy God have an unholy people? How can a righteous God tolerate people with sin? You know, Isaiah, Isaiah was taught that very vividly in Isaiah chapter 6. It's probably one of your favorite chapters in the Bible as it is mine. You remember that? In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw Yahweh high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one having six wings. Skipping down a bed, and ceaselessly they cried out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And what was Isaiah's response? Did he raise his hands and start singing and dancing, joining in the worship? Have a big smile on his face. He's got a front row seat to the entertainment of heaven. Not at all, was it? Woe to me. Literally, I am cursed. That's what he's really saying there. The curse of God is on me. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and I have seen Yahweh of hosts. The only possible thing that can happen next is for me to be destroyed. I am unworthy to join the worship. I think that's part of the reason why he focuses on his lips. I, I can't take... Yahweh's name on my lips to praise him the way the seraphim are. I would pollute his name by speaking it. My sin has permeated my whole being. So even the worship I give would give would be sinful and worthy of punishment. But you know the rest of the story, don't you? (laughs) Because the God who could justly have judged Isaiah just as he did Nadab and Abihu for their unworthy worship extends to Isaiah mercy. And Isaiah, having confessed his sin, sees Yahweh bid one of his creatures to go and take with tongs from the altar, of burning coal. And of course, here's an image of purification, of cleansing that we see often associated with that term that we've seen in our text. And he touches Isaiah's lips. Isaiah smells the burning flesh and feels the pain. But he hears the word of forgiveness. Your sin is taken away. How can a sinful people be holy? The Israelites know that these dietary laws don't cleanse them spiritually. They're not stupid. Don't read back into the Old Testament and think, oh, these people are so dumb. They think by doing all these things it makes them somehow morally superior. That's not not true. Nadab and Abihu had the holy anointing oil applied to them and they still perished. The Israelites know just as you do. The real purity is a purity of heart. And so, how do a sinful people worship a holy God? How can He bring them to be His people? Well, it's because they, because we, join David in praying in Psalm fifty-one. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me, there's the term from our text, from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me, against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you broke and rejoice hide your face from my sins and blot out my Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. You hear, I'm sure, what, what David is saying there. The inner reality must be there for the outward act of worship to mean anything that that's your hope that's your confidence your confidence isn't in always showing up to church or doing this or doing that good work your confidence is in the fact that god has chosen you to be his he has made himself your god and he has made you his people and He has made atonement for your sins. He has provided the cleansing through the blood of His Son, that is the only way in which you can be made holy. But that is a totally sufficient way for you to be made holy. He has guaranteed that He will purify you. He is purifying you right now. As you follow his leading, and he will present you before his throne, spotless, pure, holy before him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is that hope that uh, we want to, to cling to. We have no confidence in ourselves. We've tried that route over and over again. Maybe even this past week, we've we've resolved to do our best, or we've turned over a new leaf, or we've thought that we could do this or that in a way which would prove that we're good people. It it never works. Uh, We don't have the strength in ourselves. We don't have the resolve. Even our good works so often are tainted by lousy motives. Uh, Lord we confess all that and and we cast ourselves help us to cast ourselves daily on your mercy to be a, a constantly repenting people constantly receiving your forgiveness and grace and 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 the joy that comes with that forgiveness encourage us Lord if there if there's anyone here who who still still is under a weight of sin and does not understand uh, your salvation, is not have an assurance of it, I pray that you would work in their heart to draw them to yourself, enable them to have the courage to talk to me or to someone else, and to, to make certain that their faith is in you alone, their confidence is in you alone. And strengthen us all then, Lord, to be your people. Uh, there can be no higher calling. Uh, we, we appreciate the callings that we have as on uh, earth to, to be friends, to be family members, to have responsible positions at work, perhaps, or in other settings. But there's nothing, nothing like the blessing of being your people. Help us to prize that above all things and, and, to, and to seek to please you and love you in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.